Well, church, this morning we arrive at a text that I have a feeling those of you who've been reading in preparation for our Sunday service have either been dreading or eagerly anticipating. Genesis 5. Genesis 5. So if you have a Bible, please, do you open it with me to Genesis 5. And just to ease the uncertainty that's certainly spreading through our room for those who haven't read and are now racking their brains thinking Genesis 5, Genesis 5, what took place in Genesis 5? I know I'm supposed to know what happens in Genesis 5. Let me just, let me soothe your anxious minds with a little RA trick. RA trick. Every Wednesday before we royal ambassadors, and that's our third through sixth grade boys, before we begin our Bible study, we read the italicized words that are above the passage we'll be examining. And these words, as you know, aren't contained in the original manuscripts of Scripture, but they provide a helpful description of what the ensuing text will discuss. And so the words above Genesis 5, if you've not found it yet, read thus. From Adam to Noah. So that's what you'll see if you're using an NIV Pew Bible this morning. The ESV summary is a little more daunting. It offers Adam's descendants to Noah. And the Holman simply states the line of Seth. So basically, what we have before us this morning, church, is a 32-verse genealogy. Cue the applause. Rowdy cheers? No. No. I'm not surprised. Because as I was preparing for this morning, one of the commentaries I read even addressed this sentiment, or lack thereof. Victor Hamilton's introduction to this text, he notes how, quote, most readers of Scripture do not normally consider the genealogies among its more exciting parts. It's an insightful uh, word there from our commentator. However, he goes on to say, quote, Their virtual dismissal by most lay readers contrasts sharply with biblical scholars' obsession with them. Now, we are not professional biblical scholars, church, but we are most certainly biblical scholars. And while that term obsession is certainly a reach for most all of us, we can't fall into Hamilton's other category and simply dismiss this list. Because in addition to being God-breathed text, as Paul tells us in Timothy, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, in addition to this, I believe there is much to glean in this genealogy, which I pray will only grow us in the gospel. And so with that said, let me read our text now. And as I do, let me encourage you to listen for things that stand out. Will there be much repetition? Yes, you are forewarned, but don't let it lull you to sleep. Keep your ears attuned for, for changes in the rhythm and additions to the formula. So, Genesis 5 begins. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh, and after he had become the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. You still with me? Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And may God bless the public reading of his word. We made it. A lot of repetition here, right? Whereas the King James words it, so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, right? Some ten generations worth of begatting recorded here, revealing as a first point for us this morning, church, the earth's filling with Adam's image. The earth's filling with Adam's image. We're informed there. Verse 1, this is the written account of Adam's line. More literally, this is the book of the generations of Adam, where book there as a term shouldn't be understood in the literary sense that we use it today, but simply as something inscribed. Hence the Holman reads, these are the family records of the descendants of Adam. And they begin when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. Now, this prologue of sorts that precedes all the begetting that serves a significant purpose here. This prologue of sorts. As it ties, I believe, what we're about to slog our, slog our way through with what we've seen prior. And it does so by highlighting specific themes. First, it highlights God's creative process. He creates man and he does so in his image. Second, it highlights God's purposed blessing. He creates the male-female and then he blesses them. And then the third point of highlight, God's specific naming here. He called them man. Where this name is in fact Hadam in the original language of the Old Testament, but rather than, than referencing Adam specific, the man, 
This name describes both the male and the female as given by God's naming them man. So this is a reference to humankind or to humanity. And church, by highlighting these themes in this prologue, as we've said, I believe our author ties what will follow to their source, revealing the shared character of Adam in God. And let me explain what I mean. If you look back to chapter 4, and in verse 25, there we read how Adam and Eve had another child, one she recognized was a gift from God as he took the place of Abel, whom Cain killed. And at his birth, Adam, the father, named him Seth, named his son. And then Seth, as we see, has a son, and he named him Enosh. And then as we prepare to follow Adam's line further now, what I believe our author wants to make sure we don't miss is that Adam's begetting and naming makes him a father just like who? God. Just like God, where God is the first father. It's a father who begets and names, but even more importantly, a father who blesses. Because the genealogy that we're about to examine is the tracing of this gospel promise's progression. Now, yes, it's passed by begetting, but it's the promise that we're following here. It's the promise that's first given us back in chapter 3, verse 15. And church, I say that because this last week, we saw an altogether different genealogy, didn't we? An altogether different genealogy of Adam following who last week? Cain. Exactly, Cain, where despite sharing the same parents, even being the firstborn, Cain was not the promised seed who would crush the serpent's head. He departed God's presence and he became the father of secular society. And thus what we're considering today is the written account of God's gospel promise being fulfilled in Adam's line, revealing God to be both a father and a promise fulfiller. Because as we get later on into scripture, if we get further in the story with which we're all familiar, you get to 1 Chronicles chapter 1, this same genealogy here from Genesis 5, the same genealogy is repeated in 1 Chronicles 1. Only there, instead of stopping with Noah, our RA trick informs us that there, 1 Chronicles 1, we're reading the historical records from Adam to Abraham. And if we get further on into the story, we get into the New Testament, we flip to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, there we find a genealogy read backwards, so beginning with Joseph, that ends at the start with the very same ten names that we have here in Genesis 5. The very same ten names. If we read them last to first or first to last, depending on how you want to go about it, the last three read the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Or Jesus is that. God's one and only Son, begotten of the Father. And so like the Father in every way except that He's begotten. And church, it can be so tempting when we run into genealogies like the one that we have before. So tempting to just, let's just skip over that sucker so we can get back to the narrative. But when we do, as would be the case here, we run the risk of missing the beauty of God's character revealed as He faithfully, God, faithfully fulfills his word by ensuring that his promised gospel blessing is passed along. So we, we've noted at the start here the shared themes that are given between Adam and God. But before we move on, we cannot miss the contrast 
that's also provided. Verse 3, where Adam, when Adam had lived 130 years, we're told there, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. The point I was attempting to make with our children that I still have evidence of on my hand. I shouldn't have used a sharpie, but I did. His own image. Adam was clearly made in whose image? God's image. And those he produced shared his church, which I would contend implies two things. First, that we all share a common origin as human beings. We all are here as descendants of Adam, and thus we share God's image just as did he. And in that, we are reasoning, we are relational, and we are royal. We rule the earth. That's the point that we made when we considered Adam's creation when we looked at Genesis chapter 1 a number of weeks ago. But then there's a second implication here, and I believe that it is that we all share in Adam's sin. And we also addressed this several weeks ago. And for any who'd like to read further on this subject, Romans 5 is a great place to begin to see how in God's explanation of how we share in Adam's sin and guilt, but also how we may share in Christ's righteousness, which I pray this morning is true for us all, because just as the earth is filled with Adam's image, our text also reveals that the earth is marked by Adam's curse. The earth is marked by Adam's curse. And before I point out the obvious here, as regards this, our second point, let me just share a figure that I came across during my studies, which I'll readily admit, it can't be substantiated, either by scripture or by science. And yet, I still feel it's informative, as it gives us a sense of the scope here in question. And by that, I mean a simple number of the people who may have been represented by the time we get to the end of chapter 5. And so here's the figure. Seven billion, B, billion. Seven billion people, possibly, on the planet at the close of these ten generations. Now, the individual who cited this figure, I respect greatly, and he didn't give it unqualified. He based it on conservative calculations made from the years here, as well as references to having other sons and daughters. So seven, potentially seven billion people on the planet prior to the flood. And that's almost as many as there are today, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Their estimations are, I think, 7.6 billion Almost as many as there are today. Seven, potentially, seven billion people on the planet prior to the flood. And church, every one of them died, except one whom we'll address in just a moment. But every one of them died. And what's interesting about this fact that they each and every one died is it's stated some eight times here. And what's interesting about that is and then the other genealogical lists given us in Genesis our author allows the death of each individual to remain implicit in the enumeration of the total years of their lives. For example, if you were to flip over to Genesis chapter 11, there we have a genealogy that traces Shem to Abram. And in verse 11 of chapter 11, we read how after Shem became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters, period. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. After he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters, period. And it goes on. No mention of death. And yet, here, in Genesis 5, we get hit in the face with death eight times. Why? 
Friends, I believe the answer is tied to the man that we said we just discussed. Enoch, who didn't die, but he walked with God, and then he was no more. Why? Because God took him away. I believe Moses emphasized Adam's curse here in chapter 5, because at this point no one had died. I mean, certainly the full effect of the fall had not yet been felt by God's first couple. It was to flower soon, but it hadn't yet. And so Moses makes explicit their experience here of returning to the dust from which they had been taken. He makes clear Adam's curse had covered the earth. Death, death, death. And yet God wasn't done displaying his grace. God was not done displaying his grace. The mercy and, and grace that we first saw described as God came and sought out the guilty. He covered the shameful. He addressed the fearful. Now, expelled from the garden, God's grace is still evidencing itself in at least two ways. And the first, most scholars would agree, is given by life's longevity. I mean, you can't, no matter who you are, you can't read this chapter and walk away without catching the fact that these dudes are, <laughs> these dudes are living for a long time. A long time. And this usually elicits one of three responses. A, you accept that this is just how things were back then. You're thankful that's not how it is today. But this is just how things were back then. B, you reject it. It's myth. It's fallacious. Or C, you accept it, but you have to qualify the years as figurative or, or something else rather than literal. Now, I hope that we can all reject the second response. Because if this is God's word, then we can't dismiss this account as, as myth, as fraudulent. And the tricky thing then is, well, do we take these years to be actual as given or representative of something else? And the problem with the latter approach of taking them to be representative is then you have to decide, subjective you. You have to decide when our author stops being figurative and about what. And personally, I, I feel safest taking the approach to see these figures and have them reflect what they reflect. Take them at face value. As a further revelation of God's grace. God's grace in sustaining life. God's grace in sustaining life, which clearly served God's original call of Adam and Eve to fill the earth with his image. So God's grace in sustaining life, but then also God's grace in safeguarding his promise. God's grace in safeguarding his promise. Because if you spend a little time doing the math, which I'll admit I don't like, and so I didn't. I simply read the research of those who do like to do math. But if you do the math here, then you quickly realize that Adam doesn't die until after Lamech is born. Adam doesn't die until after Lamech is born, which means that there's only one generation between Noah and Adam. So it's quite possible. It's quite possible that Lamech had spoken with Adam and could have heard God's promise directly from the man who'd heard it directly from God following his sin. So Lamech could have spoken with the man who'd walked into Eden with God and knew life before sin. Now, for those of us, and I'm sure most of us have played that child's game, telephone, where you start out, you speak a word, and you pass it around the circle until it gets back to you to try to figure out what did the person say to begin with. And it's always incredible how off, how off that word you spoke becomes. It's just incredible. I believe, in a sense, like that, 
I believe that God, knowing his people's proclivity to error, graciously provided protection for his promise. And that's a promise that even extended then to Abram. Because if you go back to that passage I referenced earlier in Genesis 11, and you look at the genealogy there, then you'll discover it taking us from Shem to Abram. You'll do the math there, just as we've mentioned here. If you do the math in Genesis 11, then you discover that Abraham, the patriarch, he actually died before Shem. Isn't that, isn't that wild? So as the earth is filled by Adam's image and marked by his curse, God continues to display his grace, seen as he grants people long life, but then second, and I think far more significantly, as Enoch escapes death's curse. Enoch escapes death's curse. In verse 22, our, our text's metered monotony is just exploded by these words. Enoch walked with God. That, that line just comes out of the blue, doesn't it? The seventh hmm, in a sequence. And it's a number often with significance in biblical genealogies. But the seventh here. Enoch is afforded a privilege that we know is shared by only one other in the scriptures. Who? Elijah. However, his lifestyle, Enoch's lifestyle here, is shared with his great-grandson Noah, who's described later in chapter 6 and verse 9 as being a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Later, this same lifestyle is also attributed to Abraham and to Isaac, both of whom, Genesis 24, 40, and then Genesis 48, 15, are described as faithful servants of God who walked with God. Where, church, these connections, I believe, reveal the fact that true life, so the eternal life, the life that God is and that he breathed into Adam in the garden, true life may only be found, how? By walking with God. Where, where this walking can't be reduced to mere covenant keeping because Enoch didn't have one, did he? And neither did Noah at the beginning. And this is what Moses would later set before his people those who had followed him into the wilderness in Deuteronomy 30.15, he declared, See, I set before you today life and prosperity and death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then, Moses continues, you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. And so even for Moses, with whom we attribute so much to the law, even for Moses, life wasn't secured through mindless submission to law, but rather through heart-consuming obedience in love. And so this morning is a question, do you possess this love? Could your life be described as Enoch's, as walking with God? Or, or do you walk your own way, which just so happens to come near God on occasion, or at least where you would expect God to be, associate God with, like a church. But for the rest of the time, you're walking to your own destination, under your own steam and guided by your own sense of direction. How would you describe your life? And my prayer is that none of us this morning who are present would be banking on finding and securing life on our own and by our own merit. For while we may share God's image, it's only residual, friends. 
Adam's image is what defines us. Adam's image is what fills the earth, which is why Adam's curse is what marks the earth. And left to ourselves, this is all that we could anticipate. But God, who is rich in love, displayed His grace as He made it possible for us to escape death's curse because God ensured His promise. God ensured His promise. Verse 28, we're introduced to this man, Lamech. It's a man who shares his name, ironically, with one of Cain's descendants and who at the age of 182 has a son whom he names Noah in the hope that he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. How did Lamech know of this curse? And it's possibly because, as we said, it possibly came about through conversations with the man who was directly responsible for it. Isn't that amazing? And so, like his knowledge of the curse, Lamech also appears to be familiar with the promise. As he names his son Noah, which in the original language of the Old Testament literally means rest. Noah means rest. And Lamech names his son this before expressing his hope that he, possibly Noah, his son will provide rest from the labor and comfort in the toil of their hands. And yet before any of this is realized, Lamech dies. And yet our chapter concludes with a second modification to the genealogical formula there, as we're told that Noah became the father of what? Not one, but three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's not until later that we're going to see which of these three God will use to perpetuate his promise. But you notice how you notice how our chapter doesn't close here? What is there no mention of come the end of chapter 5? Noah doesn't die, does he? Now, we all know that he will. I mean, we, those of you who are familiar with the story, who've been cheating and reading ahead, then we know at this stage, though, at this stage what we're told by our author is nothing. And I believe our author, what he's doing here in his silence is leading us to see how God was ensuring the fulfillment of his promise. The promise that one day the offspring of the woman, a man, a man born like every other man, but who would be wholly different from every other man because he would be at enmity, this man would, would be at enmity with the serpent's offspring. He would be rejected and yet he would walk with God because he... <laughs> is God, fully God and fully man. Christ Jesus came as a descendant of Adam, a descendant of Seth, we find out later, a descendant of Noah, and he walked perfectly with God. He did only what his Father in heaven desired. He perfectly fulfilled God's law, taking on himself our sin, and despite sharing our image with all its limits and weaknesses, Christ never sinned, and so he could take our place on the cross, dying so that we might be spared. He then rose victorious over death, demonstrating God's satisfaction at his sacrifice. And so now, whoever believes in Christ need not fear the first Adam's curse because we've been clothed by the second Adam's righteousness. And friends, I pray that we all know this glorious gospel reality, which we're going to commemorate together now in the celebration of the supper. And so I'm going to ask our elders if they would make their way forward, but I'm going to ask the rest of us to simply bow our heads in preparation for this glorious gospel reminder. 
And if you are visiting with us this morning, then we invite all who are baptized followers of Christ to participate. We don't close our table to only members of our church. This is open to those who are baptized followers of Christ. You are welcome to celebrate with us in what God has so richly given us in the gospel. But would you close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment? In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, to which we often turn in preparation for our celebration, he warns at the close of his reminder to those brothers and sisters that whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man and woman, therefore, ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Because anyone who drinks and eats without recognizing, drinks and eats judgment on themselves. So this morning in preparation, and in light of that, we've been this past week, I hope and pray, meditating upon the beauty of what we celebrate together now. And we simply want to give voice to those things that God has brought to our mind. Just a rich and abiding appreciation of what we have been shown that this table symbolizes, and that's grace. Father, we thank you for your grace. Father, grace by definition is not something that could be merited, and therefore today as we turn to this table, we are not in any way obligating you to show us grace. We are not securing a channel of grace. We are simply remembering grace a day in which your grace found its fullest expression your love definitively worked as you God the Son Jesus came and died on a cross to save sinners Lord it's what your son was sent to do from the very beginning as declared by the angel he will save his people from their sins Lord, so often we take sin so lightly and we reflect and reveal by our, our attitude towards that which offends you just how low our view of you is, how we fail to appreciate your holiness, God, your complete transcendence, how you are not like us and that we might by perfecting ourselves over time, possibly someday, come to achieve divinity. No. God, you are wholly other than we are. We are lost apart from your gracious gift of Christ who saves us. Father, we thank you for this gift and this reminder around this table. And Lord, as we come and as we prepare, we ask that you would forgive us again. God, forgive us not again in that you have forgiven us once and it wasn't sufficient. But Father, we ask again for your forgiveness, recognizing that we are not perfect and that we continue to err. Lord, we are disobedient. We doubt. There are things that you have called us to do which we fail to do. There are things that we ought not do that we do. Lord, we are still broken, sinful people whom you have brought into union 
with Christ Jesus by grace. And so that we give you praise, Father. And then we ask again simply to remind ourselves of the depth of your love shown on the cross. And because your word calls for us to confess our sin. And so we do. And Father, we may have things in specific that you draw to our attention in this moment. And Father, it may also be that there are things of which we are just unaware because of our short, our, our fallen nature. God, would you forgive, we pray. Not because we in our confession now obligate you. And by, by doing this, you now have to. But God, again, only in a recognition of your grace. God, thank you for giving us life. Thank you for the reminder that this table is to us of that life which is ours the moment you bring us to life. Lord, we don't await an eternal gift at some unknown date in the future, but rather we are living in the reality of your eternal gift now, we who are yours. And this table serves to remind us, Lord, and not only us as individuals, but Father, more importantly, we as your people, your church. Lord, we partake of this table together, affirming in one another your, your grace, your Spirit's presence, who is, as Paul describes, a deposit, a guarantee of our inheritance into eternal life, which we as your church don't affirm uh, without looking to the fruit that we see. But God, it remains in your hands as the judge who is yours. But Father, we praise you for giving us your word which speaks to these things so that we can stand with confidence as your children in your presence, clothed by Christ's righteousness. Father, thank you for this table. And Father, we thank you for your body, specific, which was broken for us. Father, how you sat with your disciples that night that you were betrayed and you held before them elements of an old covenant a covenant that could not save nor was it given for that purpose but rather to show point forward to a fulfilling that you Jesus were prophesied and known to be before God you even spoke all that is into being and Jesus took those elements and Lord, you took them and changed them. You took that bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. And so we do. Father, we thank you for your body, Lord Jesus, given for us, broken on our behalf so that we, not, we don't need to. And we thank you for this in the name of the one whose body was broken, Jesus. Amen.